Morning, church family. It's great to see you guys, and uh, welcome to those of you who might be guests today. Um, met a couple of you already, and thankful that you're here. Uh, my name's Nick, by the way. I'm one of the elders here at Point Community Church, and uh, grateful for that opportunity to serve this body and um, to be on this spiritual journey with you guys. If you didn't get one of these worship guides when you came in, we have one for you. Uh, our ushers will give you that. You can lift your hand real quick, and they'll, they'll hook you up. Uh, make sure you have one. Um, but inside of that, there are just a couple of things to draw your attention to. And uh, we call ourselves a family of Jesus followers, pointing people to life in Christ. We believe that's what God's called us to be. It's our identity statement. And uh, as we do that, um, we hope that people who are coming to Point Community Church, visiting, uh, being a guest here, uh, would connect in community. If you don't have a church home, if you don't have relationships with believers uh, on a regular basis that are helping you grow spiritually, uh, you can do, do life with. We use that phrase sometimes, but uh, the idea is that we, we would have people that know us, that we know, and that we can serve and love and care for and minister to together. And so there's a list of life groups. Uh, these are just groups that meet during the week, and we encourage you to check that out. And there's even some things on the back of that that can help you understand sort of the basics of what is a group and how to get connected and all those things. So we encourage you to that. And then also we we do what's called a um, a connect card. And this is just a simple way where you can let us know uh, what's going on in your life that we can be praying for. And or if you have questions about point, how to get more connected or questions about how to grow spiritually, uh, we would be happy to follow up with you and encourage you in that. And then uh, I guess it says, say, finally, uh, on the worship guide itself, I'm going to go ahead and let you guys know, especially for you type A people in the room, um, there is typically a, a section here where we put our sermon notes, and there's some fill-in-the-blanks that we do. Uh, today, you can ignore that. Um, so uh, the short of it, before I pray, is that uh, I was not supposed to be preaching today, um, but I get to, and I love it. Um, but our, uh, one of our other leaders here, uh, took a little bit of a spill and had an accident, um, Harley to be exact, and uh, so his collarbone is in four pieces right now. Uh, he's still here, so he's a man. He is a man. Uh, he is gritting it out, um, but he is going to be having some surgery this week, so pray for him. Pray for his recovery, um, and uh, I would ask that you just pray for me. I've had less time to process this message, but I believe God's going to speak, so let's stop and pray now. God, I just thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your kindness to us. And thank you that we can come together as a group of people who don't have life all figured out. Uh, We struggle uh, daily to believe that you are enough, uh, to believe that we're loved by you. I mean, we're constantly battling uh, to believe that, that we are loved deeply by you and that that is enough Um, It's sufficient. And so I just pray that even as we go into a text that speaks to this issue today, uh, God, that you would help us to know truth and to believe truth. I pray that you would speak to us uh, through this book of John as we continue to make our way through it. Uh, We love you, that you give us your word and provided instruction for us and insight into who you are, Jesus, and how you really are life. Um, I pray that your spirit would move in this time. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, Uh, well, John chapter 7 is where we're going to be, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to pull that out. Uh, We are a church that teaches, uh, to the best of our ability, teaches the Word of God on a weekly basis as, um, as we follow God's Spirit, and we're making our way through the book of John, which is one of the four Gospels, uh, one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus, 
And we've made our way now to John chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, uh, we're going to try to cover this whole uh, chapter at least at a high level um, because it's all one cohesive narrative, one cohesive story. And uh, most of these, these stories that John records are like this. And so there's a lot of verses here, but uh, we won't be able to, to read all of them together. And I encourage you in your daily life, um, spend time reading God's Word. Uh, and one of the things that you can do to grow spiritually is to spend time reading God's Word yourself. And you don't have to go to seminary. Uh, you don't have to know everything about the Bible to read it and to just ask God to speak to you. Um, and He will as you do that. In fact, we even have a reading plan on the back of our worship guide as one simple way, one simple tool that you can use to read God's Word um, in your daily life. But here's the thing. Uh, as we kind of come to this John chapter 7, I want to start out with just a question uh, to us in the room. I hope this is a question that's uh, sort of, um, you know, obvious. But have you ever been thirsty? Have you ever been like really, really thirsty um, and just felt like that sense of, I've got to have a drink or I'm going to die? You ever been there? Um, I love my wife's family, um, but I remember I was thinking about moments when I've been really, like, thirsty, and when I grew up in my home, in my house, we didn't really use our heater very much during the wintertime. Anybody like that? You kind of like it cold in your house? We didn't really use that, our heater much, and so um, it was cold in our house, and in fact, even when I went to college, I remember, like, uh, in the winter, we keep it really cold. In the summer, we like crank it down because we weren't paying for the AC. Um, and so we like crank it down and keep it really cold in there in our, in our dorm room. But I went and visited her family for the first time. And it was, uh, it, for, for whatever reason, there was a winter time. And uh, when, I, when I remember going, maybe it was, wasn't the first time I had been at their house. And they actually liked to use their heater. And, uh, and they liked to, like, really like to use their heater. <laughs> and... Uh, I remember waking up, they live in the Lubbock area, which if you've ever been out that area, it's very, very dry, first off. And then second off, I felt like I was in an oven all night, baking. And so I woke up and I felt like a piece of beef jerky, you know? And I was just like so dry. And my mouth was like, like I had cotton balls in my mouth, you know? And you know how it gets that white, weird stuff that goes in those corners of your mouth when you're really, really dry? And I'm like... You know, it's like nasty. Like, I felt so dried out. And I was like, is this like normal, you know, in y'all's house? And, but I had this, like, I, the first thing I did when I woke up, I've got to go, I've got to get something to drink because I am so dry, you know. And I was thinking about this issue of thirst and how our bodies, uh, we crave water uh, when, when we, we, we are dehydrated, when we are in need of refreshment. And it's interesting that in our passage today, we're going to hear about some thirst and about how our thirst can be quenched. And in fact, um, in this passage, we're going to see something about two different primary groups of thirsty people, but it's not physical thirst that we're talking about today. We're not talking about, I need a drink of water. We're talking about, I need spiritual uh, I need spiritual satisfaction, spiritual refreshment, okay? Now, I want you to hang with me because we're going to start out this passage a little slow and build into this idea. But there are a couple of groups of people that really are expressing thirst, this spiritual thirst. And, and then we're going to see how that is resolved in the person of Jesus. Um, but we all know that there's more than just physical thirst. There's a spiritual thirst in our life. Um, how many of you guys, I mean, I might get trouble. How many of you guys have, have gone to see The Greatest Showman yet? Anybody? Any hands in the room? Okay. So if you haven't gone to see it, um, I don't normally do this. 
you should go see it. It's, it's an incredible movie, okay? Um, and, and it's okay if you don't. But if you do, I think you'll find it's an incredible movie because it actually reveals a lot of the human heart and a lot of the things that we struggle with and wrestle with. And without being someone who uh, messes up the movie for you, let me just suffice it to say, there is this primary figure who is thirsty for, uh, for life and for satisfaction and for acclaim and all these things. And, and so this person, you get to see this firsthand, what it looks like to be someone who is spiritually thirsty and looking to things that don't satisfy. And I think this is really a great parallel and a connection with what we're going to talk about today. But before we get there, I want us to, to quickly be reminded that in John chapter 6, uh, in John chapter 6, we see Jesus has fed 5,000 men plus women and children, roughly 20,000 people, with uh, a little snacky lunch um, of five crackers and, and a couple of fish. And, and then we see that Jesus then goes into this discourse on how he is the, the bread of life. And I told you last week, I'll go ahead and say this again, um, if you are not uh, a Christian and or you are like not really used to the Bible or you know people that are, I would not send them to John chapter 6 to start your Bible reading, okay? Let me just go ahead and say that because Jesus says some weird stuff. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, uh, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me, okay? Now, there's something much deeper there. He's not literally saying you need to, you know, come take my arm and eat it. Um, he's saying that, that he is the nourishment that we long for, the nourishment that we need, and that we feast on him, we will find real life. And so we see that in the book of John in chapter 6. And now, uh, six months later, there's this transition. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 7. Um, we've gone from this moment where he is saying he is the bread of life and, 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 and calling people where literally there were a bunch of them that deserted him. They left him because they didn't really like what he was saying. They didn't like what he was teaching about himself and the kind of commitment that he was calling them to, to chapter 7. So pick up in chapter 7, verse 1 with me. It's on the screen behind me. There's also some Bibles under the chairs around you if you need one. Here we go. It says this in uh, verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea, because the Jews were, were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, so your disciples can see your works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. And if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me. Because I testify about it. That its deeds are, not, that, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I am not going to go up to the festival yet. Because my time has not yet fully come. And after he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Now, I just want to make sure that we understand, again, the flow of this passage. And the first thing you notice here is that Jesus has been in Galilee doing ministry. This is kind of his home area, his home base. He's been doing ministry. Most of the other Gospels, there's, there's three other Gospels besides John, they focus primarily their story, their narratives around Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Okay, And so he's there. And as I said earlier, six, six months roughly have passed since the time we, we, we last heard from, from John about what Jesus was doing in his ministry. And now it says that it was the time of the, the festival of the booths or tabernacles or tents. There's multiple um, ways that they describe this. And so the Jews are going to go up to this festival. Now, this is one of the three big festivals that the Jewish people had. Okay? They had Passover, they had Pentecost, and they had festival of booths. And the unique thing about the booths festival is that it was a festival uh, that was known as kind of like the massive celebration 
It was eight days long, Sabbath to Sabbath. It was a massive celebration. And the reason it was a celebration is because it was at the end of the harvest season. Now, I didn't grow up uh, in a farmer's family, but I already mentioned my in-laws, and my father-in-law happens to be a cotton farmer. And I remember the first Christmas I attended at their house, and I was like, whoa, wow, this is like, like, this is a big deal. This is a big party, a big celebration. And it wasn't like a negative response. It was just like a wow, like, this is a big deal. And it was because they finished, like, their crops, and all their, their crops would come in of cotton around Thanksgiving and a little after in early November. And then they throw, like, basically Christmas is a celebration of God's provision that they've had this, like, you know, great crop come in. And they've got all this, they've got all their resources. They paid their bills. This is an awesome time for them. And so it's a really, really cool time to be a part of their family celebrating that. Well, in, the, in, the, in what we understand is going on in festival of booths or tabernacles uh, is that these people come together. They celebrate God's provision through the harvest. And so even people, not Jewish people, like a guy named Josephus, who records things about uh, the Jewish people in that day, he says, man, these people were like going crazy. They, the energy level was off the charts. I mean, these people were just so excited, so passionate, so pumped up. And they would celebrate God's provision. They'd also uh, just remember uh, the, the fact that they were done for the year's harvesting, and it was a really awesome time for them. So that being said, this is the context where all these Jews are now in Jerusalem, and Jesus' brothers, I didn't really give it the right tone, um, but they are being kind of punks, okay? Uh, did you know Jesus has had brothers and that his brothers were kind of not so high on him at times? Um, they're kind of being a little bit rude, uh, a little facetious, and definitely focused on themselves, definitely self-centered here. Uh, we know that Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 tells us that Jesus had at least four brothers. Uh, they're named there. And, and so uh, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas is one of them. James is one of them, who's one of the pastors in Jerusalem later. Just a side note for you. But these four brothers are now saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, uh, the festival's going on. Uh, let's go up to the festival together, and why don't you do some fun miracles? Like, why don't you do some of that, that stuff you do? And we'll kind of be along for the ride, and people will think we're cool because we're your brother. I mean, isn't this what you should be doing anyway? Because, I mean, if you can do that stuff, like, why, why don't you pick the, like, best time of year in front of all these people to show how cool you are? And then people will really like you. And they'll be pop, you'll be even more popular. And then they'll, like, want to crown you king. It'll be awesome. And then we also have position because we know you, right? So there's a little bit of undercurrent that's going on here. And, and you see that what's driving that, and we're going to come back to this, is this issue. It says in John chapter, or, or it says in verse 5, it says that they did not believe either. Now, um, they obviously believed he could do miracles, but what did they not believe? Well, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God's son, and that he had come into the world to save the world, to rescue the world. I'm assuming that if you were his brother and you grew up in his house, you might have some struggles with that too. Maybe. Maybe you just got like, hey, this is our brother. How could he be God, right? But we know that it says they didn't believe John just makes that very clear to us that they did not believe. And as a result of that, they wanted him to go do this thing. And in fact, they even wanted him to do it like right now. And Jesus says, my time has not yet come. And in fact, Jesus even says, you guys don't get it because they don't hate you. They hate me. They don't hate you because you have the same mindset they do, which is this is all about uh, what the here and now can bring and how life is in the here and now. I'm poking back at them saying, no, you have to trust me. Uh, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is much bigger. And I'm po- pointing to that. And they don't like me. 
but you don't have to worry with that, but I, I do. And so Jesus has this, 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 this conversation with his brothers about this. Now, I want us to pick back up in verse 10, because in verse 10, it tells us that actually Jesus did end up going, uh, and here's what it says. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, so he let them go on their own, it says, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly, again, because he knew that if he was caught by them, they were going to kill him. They wanted him dead. The Jews were looking for him at the festival, saying, where is he? And there was a lot of discussion about him in, in the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, uh, he's deceiving people. Now, this sounds very familiar to today, right? Some people believe Jesus is a great guy. He was a good teacher. He was a good man. did a lot of great things. Other people think he was crazy. And all the people who follow him are crazy. So this was exactly what was happening in the crowd there at this feast in Jerusalem. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him because they feared the Jews, and specifically the leaders, because they knew if they talked about him and made uh, this conversation about him and were, were being positive about him, they could be lumped in with him and potentially uh, be hurt themselves. So they feared for the, their lives. When the festival was already half over, that'd be roughly four days in, Jesus went up to the temple complex and began to teach. So Jesus does show up in secret initially, but then he goes into the public place. Well, why did he go to the temple if he, if he knew they were going to kill him? Because in the temple, there were enough people around that if they would have come and seized him, the people would have thrown you know, a fit. And they would have, had, there would have been a riot. There would have been a major problem. So Jesus knew it was safe to go into a crowd and to stand up and teach. Now, notice what he says next, uh, what John writes next, because it sounds very similar to when Jesus was this little kid. He was 12, and he goes to the temple, and he's teaching there. Now he's a grown man. He's in the temple, and he's teaching. And it says, and the Jews were amazed and said, how does he know the scriptures since he hasn't been trained? They're confused. They're like, wait, he was not trained in any seminary. He didn't have his, he didn't get any kind of uh, classes from any of our rabbis. How did this guy learn the scripture? Well, of course, we have uh, reasons we know. And he even is going to say this. He's going to speak to us here in a second. He says this. Jesus answered, my teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. Who's the one? It's capitalized in my scripture. The Father, God the Father, the one who sent him. He says, if anyone wants to do his will, he will understand whether the teaching is from God or if I'm speaking on my own. I just have to stop there for a second. Uh, this was brought up in our elder meeting this week as we talked about this text, but it is a, a, an insightful word. And that is, is that a lot of people say, well, when I read the Bible, I just don't get it. I just don't understand it. Especially I hear that from, you know, from people who are not Christians, not Christ followers, have not surrendered their life to Jesus. They're like, well, I read the Bible and it just doesn't make sense to me. It's confusing. It's weird. Um, how do you even like believe that stuff? And, and I just want to say something here that I think might sound to you a little off Especially, again, if, you're, if you haven't really come to the place of saving faith, believing that Jesus is who he says he is. And that is this, that the way we grow as Christians is first by faith and acting in obedience to what we know um, versus figuring it all out and then being able to act on it. Now, this sounds so counterintuitive to us as human beings. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have conversations um, about who Jesus is and what he's done, and we shouldn't try to sort through that and wrestle through that. But here's what I'm going to tell you. If you really want to grow as a Christian, it's going to require faith. No way around it. No way around it. Um, and this is why so many people reject the Christian faith. 
because we want everything to be in a nice, neat little package that we can understand, and then we'll accept it. And I'm going to tell you that the problem with that is that it'll never fully make sense to you. Uh, the cross is, is confounding. I mean, the way Paul writes about it, he says this. He says, to those who are perishing, those who have not yet received salvation, to those who have not received the life of Christ, he says, the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is what? It is the message of life. Uh, what I'm saying to us today is that at some point, and we're going to come back to this as well, at some point you have to be confronted with, am I going to live on my own understanding or am I going to put my trust and my hope and my faith in Christ and rest in him? And Jesus says, the reason you guys don't get me is because you're not actually willing to submit to the Father. The reason you don't understand is because you're not actually willing to get outside of yourself. You want everything to fit into your nice, neat theological packages. And so he says, my teaching isn't mine. It's from the one who sent me. And if anyone wants to do his will, he will understand whether the teaching is for me. When you come to the Bible, when you read it for yourself, let's say it's Monday morning and you get up early before you go to work, before you get your kids off to go to school, and you come to the Bible If you want to hear from God, one of the best things that you can do, one of the most important things you can do is you can say, God, before I read a word on this page, I just want you to know that I submit to you. I surrender to you, and I want to follow you, and I want to trust you. Even if this doesn't make sense to me, even if this is hard to me, and by the way, if the Bible always agrees with you, you're probably not reading it right. Just to be honest. Because God's going to push us, he's going to challenge us, he's going to stir us. And so we come with a heart that is submissive, that is humble before God, that says we have to, and even Augustine wrote, uh, one of the early church fathers wrote a ton about this idea that you have to come with a heart of faith more than being able to figure it all out and then follow. That's the hard part of our faith, but it's also the beautiful part. We see again, we desperately need God, and we come with a humble spirit. So, got to move on. If anyone wants to do his will, he will understand. And then in verse 18 he says, the one who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you want to kill me? Man, Jesus, those are fighting words. Jesus has no problem calling it out. And in fact, he is, he is prodding them because he's actually going after their system and their structure through which they found their worth, their identity, uh, their salvation. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, as he was saying that, he says to them, and we know this because I'm not, I'm not going to read it to you, but in the few verses that follow, um, Jesus says, you know, you guys are all big on Moses, and you're all big on the law that Moses got, and you're really, you're really uh, into that. But he says to them, he says, here's the thing. You guys got ticked off at me when I healed a man on the Sabbath, and yet... You guys do circumcision on the Sabbath. Now, y'all are like, what? How did circumcision get into this conversation today in the middle? of Welcome to church, right? Um, we're going to talk about circumcision. No, we're not. Um, but here's the thing. What, what Jesus was making the point of is that, look, when in the, in, the, in the way that the law was written, on the eighth day, a baby boy was to be circumcised. And then if it happened to fall on a Sabbath, guess what they would do? They would circumcise the little boy because that's what you're supposed to do. Now, whether you agree or not, uh, here's the thing. Circumcision is work. (laughs) Sounds like a little work. 
and they're having to do something. And in their culture, they were okay with that. But when Jesus doesn't just circumcise externally, you know, fix somebody to mark them as his chosen people. That's what circumcision was about, this covenant between God and man But he, in, in his particular people group. But he actually heals a man holistically. They go bonkers. Do you see the hypocrisy? So Jesus is driving at, again, your system is so fouled up that you're willing to break the law of the Sabbath or not keep it and when it makes sense to you. But when it doesn't make sense to you, when I'm actually helping a man get healed, you're ticked off about it because it doesn't fit into your box. And we know because Jesus knew their hearts. It was more than, than all that. What am I trying to say to you? I'm trying to say to you that these religious leaders... They also had a thirst. They also had an issue, and they wanted power and prestige, and they wanted nothing to threaten that, including Jesus. And I should say, especially Jesus. They wanted Jesus to fit into them. So I'm going to just summarize briefly 25, verses 25 through 36, where in the passage, um, this intensifies more and more and more. Jesus' identity, he makes it more clear to them who he is and where he is from. And they just get frustrated and they get angry and they are provoked. And I say they, again, these religious leaders, and the crowds are dividing over, is he, is he not the Messiah? And ultimately, they get so angry and so frustrated that the religious leaders send the police to go arrest Jesus, to seize him. They're like, forget this. We are done with it. We have got to shut him up. You police, uh, I need you to go and to get them. It says the temple police were sent to, to get Jesus. Now, what's interesting, by the way, is that when the temple police go to get Jesus, he's teaching, and when they hear him teach, they're like, uh, he's awesome. <laughs> I'm not arresting him. You want to arrest him? I think, I think we're, we're hands off here. In fact, in the later part of the passage, I love it. I mean, you got to laugh because these texts are way more funny than, than, than they're, way, they're way funnier than we, than we make them out to be. And, and here's what it says in the very end of, of the passage. It says that when the Pharisees, verse 45, the temple police came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked him, uh, why haven't you brought him? And the police answered, no man ever spoke like this. He's awesome. Like, I'm not touching the guy. So that made him even matter, right? But I want to get back to this next section of scripture because this is the pinnacle of the entire passage. And I want to explain to you why. Because up until this point, what we have is we have Jesus' brothers who are thirsting for satisfaction in security and significance and control and, and acclaim through their relationship with Jesus. And you have these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, that they want their thirst to be quenched by their power and their prestige in these high faluting religious positions that they're in. And notice what Jesus says in verse 37. Now, on the surface, you're not going to get fully this, but we're going to explain a little bit more. Here's what it says. On the last day and most important day of the festival, so day eight of the festival, Jesus stood up. We're assuming in a crowd, and he cries out, If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flowing from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been received, because Jesus had not yet been 
glorified. Now, as I said, we're not going to be able to read all the text, and the rest of this text today shows us more division and debates about who Jesus is, and, and we find different characters in that, even including Nicodemus, our friend from John chapter 3. He's in this story. But what you notice is that when Jesus stands up and says this, he is making a claim that he is the source of life, that he is the source of satisfaction, that he is the thirst quencher, that all of the thirst that these people feel, and I would summarize that the two primary things that these people want is they want control, and they want the acceptance and the approval of others. They feel like if we have control, and if we have the acceptance and approval of others, then we'll have real life there. But the problem that I think all of you in this room know, if you are wise, is that control is an illusion, and that the acceptance and the approval of others is never enough. Would you agree? And whether you're Jesus' brothers, or whether you're the religious people, or whether you are a man or woman or child who lives in Austin, Texas in 2018, you will never find yourself fully satisfied in control and in the acceptance approval of others. It's not there. In fact, Jeremiah, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, said it this way as he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Do you hear what the prophet is saying? He's saying to the people of Israel, you have looked for life. You have looked for satisfaction in things outside of me. And guess what? They're cracked cisterns that are perpetually losing, draining the things that you think you need and want. So you're stuck. You're thirsty, but you're going to the wrong place for the satisfaction and the refreshment that you want. Now this sounds very similar because we heard the same type of language in John chapter 4. When Jesus is at the woman, with the woman at the well, the woman who's the adulterous woman, she's there and she has had five husbands. Jesus calls her out on that. I mean, it'd be beautiful if Jesus showed up on the scene today and just starts calling us out on our sin, right? Calls her out and says, you've had five husbands and the one you have right now, the man you're with, is not your husband. But I can give you something that will satisfy you more than a man. I can give you living water. I can give you something that drugs and alcohol and relationships and money and acclaim and all these things cannot give you. I can give you the satisfaction your heart longs for and the relationship you were made for in me. And so we see Jesus even in that saying, I am the living water. And now he's saying this in a crowd. Now, why is this so significant? Well, what I didn't tell you about the feasts of booths, tabernacles, and tents is that one of the most meaningful parts of the celebration, which, by the way, was a celebration, again, not just of the harvest coming to an end, but was reflecting on, in the Old Testament, we see Deuteronomy chapter 16 explaining this. It's funny that today my Bible reading, um, I'm reading with the, 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 we have four residents right now on our, our uh, uh, team, and um, we're reading through the Bible in 90 days. Uh, it's a lot. And, uh, and so today's reading actually talks about the festivals, and one of them is the festival of, the, 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 of booths, the festival of the tents. 
And one of the most important practices in the midst of that celebration and that memorial time was to remember how God provided for his people. We talked about last week, God provided manna, this bread, this weird stuff that was on the ground in the morning when they wake up and walk outside their tent, there would be this flaky stuff and they could make bread out of it. God provided that supernaturally so that they wouldn't die in the wilderness. But he also provided water. Do you remember that story? Twice we see that once God calls Moses uh, to strike a rock and the water flows from it. And then we see again that God tells Moses to speak to the rock and he struck it because he wasn't perfect. And he strikes the rock and the water flows from it. And so the people would remember this fact that God provided water in the desert by every day during the feast, one of the, the, um, the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam and they would take a pitcher and they would take this golden pitcher and they would fill it up with water. And then there would be a procession with this pitcher of water. They would go back to the temple. And as they would go to the temple, the people would, would sing and they would, they would shout and they would celebrate and they would reflect on God's provision in the desert. And how he would bring the water that they needed. And in fact, they would sing through Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And it was a really cool thing. And I have a feeling, though John doesn't record it this way, that maybe, maybe, just maybe, as that picture was going by, Jesus stands up and cries out and says, I fulfill that today. I am the spring of living water. I am the water in the desert that you desperately need. The desert of unbelief the desert of not finding enough, the desert of being where you have broken cisterns, Jesus says, I am your satisfaction. I am your refreshment. I am your life. When he says, I am the spring of water, and by the way, notice he says, if anyone comes to me. Not if you've done all these things. If you've checked all these boxes and you're a good person, then you can't have living water. No, just like the woman caught in adultery, he says, right now, right here in this moment, regardless of what your past is, regardless of how much you've screwed up, regardless of whether you've been a good church person, you can have living water. You can have satisfaction. In fact, you can have a spring of living water when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you that will feed you day in and day out as you look to Jesus as your life and your satisfaction. How beautiful is that, guys? Do you see, as we've been saying throughout this book of John, that the Christian faith is not just another dead religion where you try to work your way and earn your way to God's good graces. It is God coming into us and providing and sustaining and refreshing our every need, every moment of every day. And yes, let's be honest, we all have our broken cisterns we run to. And some of our broken cisterns are actually good things. God's gifted some of us with talents and abilities and resources. God's gifted us with families and relationships and and great things. And even those things, if we make them ultimate, if we look to those things for our satisfaction and significance, guess what? They're broken cisterns and they're gonna leave you dry and empty and in a desert. Listen, parents in the room, your kids They are beautiful gifts from God, but they are terrible gods. And if you build your life around your children and you find your identity in their performance in a classroom or on a a field, a sports field, or wherever it is, that if you look to your children for your significance and your security and your pleasure, guess what? They're broken cisterns. They're insufficient. You're gonna find yourself dry, spiritually, wanting, If you look to your job, men and women, 
If you look to your job and you say, well, my job, I mean, I just feel like I'm doing something. Even if you get the job of your dreams, it's still a broken cistern. It's not enough to satisfy the deep longings of your heart and your soul. It's not. Because there is, again, no control, acceptance, or approval of people that is going to fill the voids in your heart. Only Jesus can fill those voids. And it is not just those who are not Christians who struggle with this, right? And I would say to you that at the core of this spiritual dryness, this thirst, at the very core of this thirst is unbelief that Jesus is who he says he is, the spring of living water. It's unbelief. That's why I think John says and brings out the point, remember his whole goal of his book was to help us believe in who Jesus was and to have life in him. And he says about the brothers, they didn't believe. And I think what we see in the religious leaders and these Jewish people is unbelief. We see unbelief that he really is the spring of living water. And I would say to you today that whether you are a Christ follower in the room or whether you are an unbeliever, maybe searching, maybe not even interested, just got drugged here by someone who said you're going to church today. Regardless, we are all spiritually thirsting. And regardless, we all desperately need the spring of living water that Jesus offers. And isn't it beautiful that Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water that flow deep within him. Um, You know, sometimes people think that uh, church leaders, like, never struggle with this. (laughs) That's really silly. I remember multiple times in my life where I've been spiritually dry, like really struggling to feel like I was close to God, that I was doing anything of real significance or purpose. Um, I remember just a few years back, I was going through a real hard season and dryness spiritually, like just feeling like, man, what, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my time? Am I doing anything at all? Like, and it was crazy because we were in some of the most unique seasons of ministry. Like, God was doing some really cool things around us. But my eyes weren't on God. My eyes were on me. And I remember going to a pastor prayer retreat. I'll go in a couple weeks with other pastors from around our city and around this region. And we pray together. And it's just a really unique time just to pray with all different denominations and, and backgrounds of pastors and leaders and just say, God, we need revival. We, like, we need you to, to spring up in our city or like we're, we're just kind of wasting our time. Um, it's a beautiful time, but I remember going and I was like, I really don't want to be here. And any of the, the pastors that looked like they were passionate about God, I was like, I don't like you right now. Like, seriously. I was like, whatever. Pastors get that way. Church leaders get that way. And I remember I was praying that morning. I said, God, honestly, I need to either go home or you got to do something. Because I, I don't really want to sit here and be a hypocrite amongst all these pastors who are like raising their hands and praising God singing praises to him. And I went outside and I was sitting, it was at Camp Buckner, not too far from here. And I felt like God led me to Isaiah chapter 43. 
I won't read the whole passage to you, but one verse stands out to me, and it's a verse that really has been significant in the course of my life, and it's reminded me that when I'm spiritually dry, chances are my eyes are no longer on the spring of living water. My trust is no longer, my belief is no longer that God is sufficient. I have turned to other broken cisterns, and that's why I'm in a desert. And here's what it says, verse 19. Look, I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. I get emotional even thinking about it. Like, there was such a powerful moment when God spoke to me and he said, Nick, like, it's not you. It's what I can do. It's not, you are not the spring. You cannot sustain. You cannot sustain mission. You cannot sustain ministry. You can't sustain passion for me. Only I can do that for you. And look, I'm going to. I'm going to do something new in that desert. Where are you today? What are you looking to? What are you finding yourself longing after but finding that it doesn't satisfy? Are you spiritually dry today? Are you hurting? Uh, Do you feel like you're a hypocrite because you're saying you praise God but really your heart is far from him? Do you feel like this spring of water imagery idea is like foreign to you? Look, I say to you, God is doing a new thing. He wants to spring up wells of living water in your desert, in your life, wherever you are. He wants to sustain you. He wants to bring you back to a place where you know that he is enough. Not only is he enough, but he's more than enough. That he will overflow in your life. That he will lead you through valleys and trials and struggles and remind you that there is no amount of control, acceptance, approval of others that's going to satisfy. As they would pour out that water at the feast of the tabernacles. They would pour it out And the people would go, yeah, God provided. Remember that Jesus, his blood was poured out. That the living water was spilled so that we could have eternal life. We can have life. In some of you in this room, you're still trying to earn your way to God. You're still trying to create your own well, your own spring. You're like, man, if I can just... uh, if I could just be a little more passionate about God, a little more excited, if I could just, man, if I could just get a little bit more uh, conviction. Listen, without God, we are hopeless. We are helpless. What we desperately need is the humility that the disciples, that the brothers of Jesus, and that these religious leaders lack. We need the humility to say, Jesus, we, we need you because we can't do it. That's what we need. And he'll meet us in that. He's a faithful God. He's a gracious God. He doesn't give us a works-based religion. He gives us grace upon grace upon grace to meet us in our need. Let's pray. God, I just thank you that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are so incredibly patient with us. I mean, you see how quick we turn to other things. Even those of us who claim to be Christ followers, who believe our salvation is in you, Jesus, and yet daily 
we look to the things of this life to be our satisfaction. God, I pray even now in this room that you would, by your spirit, speak to every person here and you would speak your love and your grace and your mercy into their lives. Like, God, we, we are helpless and hopeless apart from you intervening. Um, God, I want to live every day, and I believe every person in here wants to live every day with that spring of living water through your spirit inside of us, uh, giving us the strength, the purpose, the drive to live every day, not for ourselves and for our glory, but for yours. We know that's where real satisfaction joy, peace, hope is found. Please pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.